Hello and welcome to episode number 274 of the Armin Show podcast, where we are booming. It is interesting, intellectual discussion, learn more, figure out things. Life is but a moment. On this episode, we have Dr. Jeffrey West. And before I transition to Dr. Jeffrey West, I want to bring some backstory. I need to bring more backstory these days because there's a full scenario about it. If you go back to the earliest episodes of my show, episodes 2, 9, and 11, I summarized, that was early on when I was summarizing chapters of books, Scale by Jeffrey West was the book I, the earliest one I summarized on this iteration of the podcast, and it's up there also there. And it represents, well, we'll talk about what it represents, but it's about cities scaling and how that affects people's movement, speed of activity. And recently, I had seen an article by Dr. West teaming up with Dr. David Krakauer, I believe that's how it's pronounced, talking about how the scaling is connected to the current moment with the pandemic. We'll get into that. Dr. West, I want to thank you for being on here. Welcome to the show. Amen. Thank you so much. And uh, delighted to uh, be here with you, even if it is in these strange circumstances. And... Uh, and thank you for the plug for my book. <laughs> and I see the picture of it. Indeed, I had noticed up on the wall is, is the uh, cover. <clears throat> so thank you. Anyway, appreciate it. So I look forward to our conversation. Wonderful. I'm glad to as well. It is up there, one of the nine books on my wall of entertaining background that I once created recently. Now, first off, I want to mention, it's kind of cool. We are both in Los Angeles, but you are from the United Kingdom. Can you give us a little bit on your background there and how you've progressed a bit to where you are today? Sure, I'll try to keep it brief, but uh, mm -hmm. yes, I, I'm British. Uh, I was born in the West of England and uh, I uh, got on my entire education in the UK and I graduated from uh, <clears throat> Cambridge in 1961. And uh, I didn't know quite what I wanted to do with myself um, I had uh, done basically physics as an undergraduate, physics and mathematics, uh, but I didn't feel I really wanted to go on with it. But I came from I come from a very modest uh, economic background, and I didn't uh, um, and I didn't have money to sort of go off and find myself in a gap year or whatever. But I so I applied to graduate school and I got into Stanford, and they 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 were the ones that offered me most money. That's why I went there originally. And I went uh, to spend a year thinking I would, uh, you know, move out of physics, but I went as a physics graduate student. But in fact, I got turned on there, mostly by the other students, ironically, um, who were fantastic. And um, to cut a long story short, that led me back into physics and to see physics as something exciting for the reasons I was originally interested in it. Namely, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 the way it presents questions and answers them in a definitive, quantitative, analytic way, and a way of thinking about the world. And, um, uh, you know, origins of the universe, meaning of life kinds of questions, big questions, and I thought physics was the way. And that got me more excited, and so I ended up having a career in, um, in physics, and I spent my career doing what came known as high energy physics, I mentioned particle physics, that is, I'm trying to understand and, and uh, discover the fundamental laws of nature um, uh, 
and uh, fundamental particles, quarks and gluons and uh, grand unified theories and so on, and string theory, ultimately dark matter. So I ended up spending my career working on most of those things. And I, um, when I left Stanford as a graduate student, I went to Harvard and then Cornell for short periods. And then I returned to Stanford on the faculty for a while. And then I moved, a new group was being founded at Los Alamos. And uh, to my surprise, I decided I would go. I was asked to uh, head that group and help put it together. And I intended to go for just a few years, but I ended up spending 30 years there. Uh, and we had a fantastic group. Uh, and, uh, but towards uh, the end of it, um, I was uh, recruited, if you like, uh, to join the Santa Fe Institute, which maybe we can talk about independently of this, um, uh, which was an institute founded in the 80s by a group of extremely distinguished people, several major Nobel Prize winners, um, uh, to um, sort of uh, um, change the direction or add a complement to the traditional academic framework, the academic landscape. That is, um, they were concerned that everything was becoming so specialized and so salami, so sliced up. Um, you know, you had to be an expert in some diddly individual thing in order to make, uh, to get um, advancement in, in academia. And they felt that some of the big questions were being missed and the interconnection between things, the, the, the idea of interdisciplinary work, cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary, um, really didn't exist at that time. And this institute was set up to do that and promote that. And an outcome of that was the development of what became known as the science of complexity. That is uh, dealing with systems that transcend multiple disciplines and ones that are not easily amenable to traditional analyses. And, uh, you know, such as, um, you know, the economy. I mean, there are fields doing this, but then they're highly, they're, they're much more structured. And the idea was to see it in a much broader context, but things like finance, the economy, the weather, uh, the stuff, stuff I've worked on, cities, the origins of life, um, the origins of altruism, and so on, all some of these kinds of bigger questions. And, but bringing together the anthropologists with the economists, with the physicists, uh, with the biologists working together um, uh, in a self-selected kind of way uh, to uh, bring different perspectives to some of these big questions. And that was founded in the 80s. And um, I was asked to join it in the uh, 90s, late 90s, because uh, maybe we will discuss this. I had accidentally and serendipitously wandered into those kinds of questions uh, while whilst working in high energy physics, and I'd wandered into some of those big questions in biology, and uh, um, and that, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, started this journey from, you know, dealing with the elementary particles to dealing with the messy world around us, you know, life and uh, uh, various aspects of life, ecology, ecosystems, and then cities and companies and ultimately the thing I'm really passionate about thinking about is global sustainability and the very question that can any of this actually persist? I mean, is it, is in fact the system we have evolved actually 
in principle even sustainable? <clears throat> so those are the kinds of questions. Anyway, so that's maybe longer than you wanted, but a sort of summary of how I got from being a, um, <clears throat> a very naive young 17 year old entering Cambridge in 1958 to sitting in Los Angeles <laughs> in 2020. I want to mention for me and all the listeners that is not longer than any of us wanted. We all liked it and more. Mm. I would add that. Now I want to put in about the Santa Fe Institute. I have very much liked what has come out of there from what I've seen. Are most of the people who research there like network minded versus linear? Would you say that? Yeah. So the um, so the institute is an interesting beast in a way. It's it's a small place physically. Um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's a beautiful location, spectacular location. And uh, on site at any one time, there are anywhere from 25 to 70 researchers. Usually, you know, if, if this has been normal times, it's the middle of summer, we would have probably between 50, 60 people on site. If it were in, uh, you know, I don't know, October, Mm -hmm. um, or February, there might only be 25 or 30. So, uh, but uh, a small number are in residence. There's a small resident faculty of maybe 15 people. Uh, and there's probably up to 20 postdocs and a few students. But primarily, there's uh, something called the external faculty of 100 people that are from all over the world and from many of the major institutions around the world who have a faculty appointment and spend anywhere from a day to you know, a couple of months at the Institute. And all of this is sort of mixed up together <laughs> in a big crucible. And uh, it's very networked, it's very distributed, and, uh, with, and covering the entire spectrum of science. Um, and, and a little bit into, a little teeny bit into the humanities, and a little bit into the medical sciences, but it's mostly oriented towards traditional basic research. Um, and uh, the, the orientation is towards sort of fundamental questions and towards systems that are, for want of a better phrase, are complex adaptive systems. They're evolving systems, the ones I already mentioned, you know, culture, the economy, um, and so on. So um, these, uh, so it's a fascinating place and it attracts all kinds of interesting people. It's not everybody's cup of tea, of course, but uh, for those that want sort of, you know, that are, and those are the kinds of people it attracts. So those people that are sitting in their department, you know, doing what they should be doing within their department and making great careers, feel frustrated that, you know, when they move out of their little box, um, uh, they don't get any reward for it or any appreciation. Let's put it that way. Their, their, their colleagues typically don't appreciate it and so on. And this is a place that attracts such people. So, and, and what is interesting is the spectrum of people are from, you know, Nobel Prize winners um, who obviously could get, um, you, know, you would think, would always, you know, could get whatever they wanted in their home institution, <laughs> but feel somehow that they're not always appreciated if they start thinking about other things, all the way down through, all the way down through, you know, senior people, mid-career people, junior people, to postdocs and 
students, including undergraduates. We have a very good undergraduate program. People, young, young students coming to spend time with us, especially in the summer, but they keep going. I mean, I have one, I just finished a paper. A paper just got accepted um, that started with a young man that came as, a, as a, an undergraduate. Gosh, it must be at least 10 years or more ago. 10, 15 years ago, I don't know. And uh, he ended up going to UC San Francisco Medical School to get his PhD MD and is now a professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. <laughs> and this paper just, it's something, you know, we've worked on other things, but we just published And it's very nice. It's a nice feeling that, that uh, you know, coming, that, that's sort of a nice connection and it feels very much SFI in that it's um, a paper on things that uh, brought together um, people from, you know, I'm a physicist, where I still think of myself, uh, um, another physicist who is now on the faculty in evolutionary biology at UCLA, who was an ex-postdoc of mine, but he came as a physicist to me, but he's on the evolutionary biology department at UCLA. Someone that I hadn't worked with before, Gina, who, Gina Poe, who is um, in uh, at UCLA, a senior person, works on sleep. And uh, a young woman who was a student at Berkeley who worked with uh, Van, the person at UCLA, the person who did my postdoc. She is now in the business school at the University of Texas in Austin. And then this guy, Alex, Alex Herman, at the University of Minnesota, in Minneapolis. So this is a motley crew, and that's typical of the kinds of collaborations we try to foster. I like this concept very much. That's pretty much my category of interest where things mix. And I like how you pointed out in the more linear setups, then if you take risks outside your field, it's not really appreciated. But then if you go to a category of people who also like networking effects and mixing, then suddenly it's like, wow, what a great connection you've made. And at least you're taking a risk and you're trying this. But somewhere else, that exact same thing, they'd say, no, you're messing up our efficiency. We are for this yeah. direction. One thing also that comes to mind is, I think the first time I heard of the Santa Fe Institute was, I did not speak with him, but I once did a oh, interview with him, text interview when I was doing text interviews with John H. Miller, oh, yeah. a, a crude look at the whole. And it made me think like, oh, this is a facility where they're mixing business and life and right. different categories. And then ever since then, anytime I've seen that someone was connected with that institute, they have that kind of mind that doesn't stick in one category. Yeah. It's not like so John Miller is a good example. John Miller um, is a colleague of mine and he's at, uh, he's actually his major appointment is chair of an economics department. It's not the economics, it's a different. It's, it's, it's got some funny title at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, John is an economist um, and he was a postdoc originally. He was in fact the first ever postdoc at the Santa Fe Institute. He was a student of the, some of your listeners may have heard of him, the famous Herb Simon, who was a, an extraordinary man, economist, got Nobel Prize in economics, but a polymath. He was interested in everything. And, contributed to many different fields. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, John is a good example of Mesa. He's still very much connected with the Santa Fe Institute. And he wrote that book, as you say, A Crude Look at the Whole. Um, 
which was about some of these questions and issues and, and uh, the, the sort of culture of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, one thing I want to go to, because it made me think of your book, which by the way, I always like it. The cover, it shows the actual scale, the letters of scale. <laughs> scale. <laughs> this is a fabulous thing. Now, one thing I think of when I think of the book is that city dynamics and how doubling of population, how that affects speed of walking. And then it also makes me think about all the different, I'm not sure how much it was just in this, this, this book and another book I read, but about how scales in body parts, like the blood vessels, scales of networking connection speed. What are the main things that come to your mind when you think of scale as far as how they apply to uh, numbers in our real world? Well, I'll answer that by saying the kind of thing that got me involved in this. The first, my, my first, so scale, the idea of scale and scaling, uh, which is really, you know, um, addressing what seems like a very naive, simple question. What happens to a system if you increase its size or decrease its size? You know, if you double the size, what happens? Is it just, you know, just linearly blown up and just behaves in pretty much the same way or do other things happen? Well, we sort of know that's obviously not true eventually, but nevertheless, it's answering that question. And uh, this actually plays um, traditionally a crucial role in many sciences, particularly in physics, it's played a major role, uh, but it also plays a major role in engineering and in the real world. I mean, industry is always dealing with that question. How do you scale up, not just the company, but how do you scale up the product or, or an architect dealing with you know, building a building, you know, if you, if you scale up a building, uh, what are the laws that govern how, you know, how many windows it should have, and how the strength of the girders need to be, and so on. There's all these sort of fundamental questions to do with structure. Um, and uh, there's been a history of that. Um, my interest in it was, um, was something much more fundamental was, <clears throat> you know, as the universe um, expanded from the Big Bang, um, you can think of that as a scaling phenomenon. It just keeps scaling up. And the question is, what happened? You know, and uh, that really is the way that many people feel think about the, the evolution of the universe. And there's very fruitful work has been done on that. And, uh, plays a central role. So um, I, um, so my interest in terms of the things out there in the, so to speak, you know, the world around us um, uh, was um, uh, to do with uh, the biological world. That is the, something just alluded to. That is that um, how does, you know, is, well, I'll put it slightly differently. A question that has been asked in the past, to what extent is an elephant just a scaled up mouse? That kind of question. Uh, they're both mammals, they obviously look different, and they are quite different in terms of <laughs> the environments they live in, for obvious reasons. Um, and, uh, but the question is, you know, what are the similarities? Well, it turns out, um, to cut a very long story short, and this is the work I got involved in, and which started this whole process and ultimately leading to that book, was the whole question of showing that, in fact, an elephant is a scaled up mouse, in fact, but it's not scaled up in a simple way. It's scaled up in a highly nonlinear way, but it follows well-defined mathematical laws. 
And um, those laws had actually been discovered uh, already some time ago, um, or at least 50 to 75 years ago. They had just been discovered from the data. And the most famous of which is something called Kleiber's Law, which was the very simple question of um, how much food do you need a day to stay alive? That is your metabolic rate. Um, how much food do you need? To how does that scale with the size of the animal? And obviously an elephant needs much more food than a mouse. But what is amazing is that when you plot how much food you need, metabolic rate, versus the weight of the animal, it follows a very simple line, a very simple curve. And that curve basically says, if you translate it into English without saying the mathematics, is that very roughly speaking, if you double the size of an animal, let's just say mammals to keep it simple. If you double the size of a mammal from say two grams to four grams or two kilograms to four kilograms, or 200 kilograms to 400 kilograms, doesn't matter. Anytime you double it, instead of needing twice as much food, that is, which is what you'd expect because there's twice as many cells, you actually need 75%. Every time you double, you save 25% in terms of the energy needed to sustain the organism. So an elephant is extraordinarily more efficient than a mouse. And that gets reflected in the fact that a mouse only lives a couple of years and an elephant can live for 75 years. And uh, because it uses so much less energy and therefore is doing much less damage to itself in processing that energy. And um, that, it turns out that law, that sort of 25% savings law permeates all of life. That is, it's not just mammals, but it's birds, fish, crustacea, cells, insects, trees, everything obeys the same law. But not only that, what was amazing is that all of, if you look at all of the physiology, that is, you know, how long your aorta is, for example, or how much, um, um, you know, how, how much blood is, do you have in your body? These scale in a similarly predictive, simple way, sort of like that scaling I talked about for metabolic rate, and it's always a 25% kind of law. So, um, uh, for example, the way heart rates, heart rates decrease in size following a similar, we call it one quarter, one quarter is like 25%, one quarter power law is the, is the language. So this is extraordinary, and the work I got involved in was I was incredibly intrigued by such laws, that were just found from the data. And together with um, uh, biological colleagues, uh, men named Jim Brown, and uh, student Brian Enquist at the time, um, we unraveled the origin of these laws, why these laws were working, and derived them some basic principles. And those basic principles are that all of this follows from the fact that an organism, all organisms are network systems. And it is the mathematics and physics of the networks that give rise to these scaling laws. So that's how I think of scale, is very much in that context. Mm -hmm. How much does it connect? I think about it in the connection between, so there's blood vessels, the network there, yeah. cities, how they network out from uh, main right. points, 
our brain plasticity, the neurons, outward, like tree branches, are these all connected in a similar form? And isn't the city one cool? Yes. So this is what's wonderful. First of all, it was wonderful when we did that work to see that the same mathematics and physics through these networks, because of the network properties, permeated all of biology. It was the unification of all life seen through networks manifesting itself as these extraordinary universal scaling laws and dominated by this one quarter. And we derived the one, where the one quarter came from. So um, that was beautiful and very satisfying. And especially, you know, to see that, you know, I'm looking out of the window here and I can see some very nice trees out there and so on. And what is amazing is even though they're very different, you know, obviously quite different than us, but in fact, if you were to tear open my chest and look at my cardiovascular system, you are a tree. Just like that. And it works sort of like that, even though it's quite different because I have blood flowing in it That's and it's a bunch of tubes branching out. And this is a bunch of fiber bundles, plants of fibers that are joined. Nevertheless, the mathematics that controls all of this, this kind of hierarchical branching, fractal-like self-similarity permeates all of life. And um, the work that we took this into, going into cities um, and into more, more recently into brains, neural, net, neural networks, um, you see the same thing. It's the same kind of mathematics is being uh, reflected in those systems, even though the way they manifest themselves may be quite different in the same way that in biology, you know, the, the, the laws manifest themselves sometimes as a tree, sometimes as an insect, sometimes as a human being. But underlying all that is this extraordinary um, universality and unification. And it was lovely to be able to extend that into particularly cities, um, urban systems. Uh, so that's been great fun and, and very enjoyable. One thing that comes to mind, this is sort of a thought in my mind, I notice in all of them, whether it's cities with their biggest freeways or our biggest blood vessels, or like the beginning of the brain development, it almost looks like there wasn't that much room for where to put that big freeway or where to put that, like it just, it fit based on the environment, like it had to be here. So there, yeah. there almost wasn't that much room for variety, even though it looks like, oh, this could have gone anywhere. But like yeah. based on the variables of that element of, of that, seen there was only so much room for where the really large nodes I don't know yeah, so so that brings up the question of you know how deterministic is this mm -hmm. right i mean it's a, and and that's a very interesting question because physics is of course a deterministic field i mean every you know basically i mean there are some with some minor with some well major caveats with some caveats everything in the physical world is thought to be deterministic. Now, we have to modify that with questions of quantum mechanics and chaotic phenomenon, but there is that idea that you have very, you have fundamental laws that allow you to derive quantities mathematically to great precision. And, uh, you know, and we, <laughs> we discovered those, and because we discovered those, I can be talking to you in this bizarre way, <laughs> looking at this two-dimensional flat screen in front of me and you likewise, and here we are, it's just extraordinary. 
but that's because we discovered those laws. Maxwell discovered the laws of the unification of electricity and magnetism, and from that, electromagnetic waves, and that changed everything kind of thing. So that, together with Newton's laws, allows great precision for determining how the, the machines in front of us work and how we can put satellites up there and know exactly where they are, bounce waves off them, and I can talk to you in real time. That's amazing. But uh, the question, so a question that is implicit in all this is, is it conceivable that, that, that biology, let's just stay keep with biology for the moment, life has any laws like that? And I would say the answer is no. And that does get into this whole realm of what we talked about earlier implicitly, namely the origins of the Santa Fe Institute, that these systems, the trees, the plants, the mammals and the birds and ecosystems, um, almost certainly don't have laws like that, it, meaning ones where we can write down equations that give precise predictions. You know, that is that, um, you know, just, a, just a, a tangential remark to that. In physics, you know, we can calculate the, what's called the magnetic moment of the electron. That is, you know, the, the electron actually uh, has a magnetic properties as well as just electrical properties, but it has magnetic properties. And so it acts like a little magnet, actually. And we can calculate the strength of that magnet to more than 12 decimal places. And it has been measured and found to be exactly as predicted to 12 decimal places. Super high level of detail. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, there's nothing, obviously, there's nothing even closely resembling that that we would be able to do in these complex adaptive systems, um, like, you know, asking questions about trees in general or mammals in general, or certainly not about individuals. I'm never going to be able to predict the day on which I'm going to die, uh, for example. I might be able, on the other hand, to predict given enough information, well, you ought to live for another seven years, plus or minus two, right. you know, something like that. So the, it, it brings in much more what we call stochasticity, that is a probabilistic kind of way of thinking, in, in order to, to complement, and this is what the role I have tried to play, complement taking actually the deterministic view and seeing how far it can go, recognizing that there's a lot of fuzziness and grayness around the edges. So going back to those scaling laws, I can tell you, first of all, what does it say? It says that even though the whale lives in the ocean, the elephant has a big trunk, <laughs> a giraffe a long neck, we walk on two feet and the mouse scurries around, we are scaled versions of one another in a non-linear way following the laws, these quarter power scaling laws, that come from the networks. But there's a lot of variation among that. That is, I can only say, I can tell you, for example, the length of the aorta of a shrew. I can tell you how long it's going to live. I can tell you, I can predict how many children it will have. I can predict how fast it can run. I can, and so on and so forth, how long it takes to maturity. But up to about 80, 90%. There's, you know, 10 to 20% that obviously is determined by its, its local environment, 
its history, its geography, and so on, which play an important role. I will never be able to predict why the, the elephant having a trunk. I mean, I might predict that there could be such a creature which has, has extended its nose in order to do X and Y and so on in the environment. But so there are, so the, the nature of biology and more generally complex adaptive systems, because they're continually evolving and adapting to their environment, the, the, the fundamental character in terms of scientific understanding and predictability are qualitatively different than in the physical world, even though all of them at some level obey mathematical equations. Right. We can only pin us down so much because there's much more layers, whereas like an electron, we pinned it down to an electron. Yeah, and uh, electrons are all identical. Yeah. But human beings, you know, I mean, it's sort of interesting in a way because it, it also goes to the question of scale in a different way. If I go to sort of metaphorically to 100,000 feet, roughly speaking, all human beings are the same. You know, probably to a oh, yeah, yeah. chimpanzee, all human beings look alike in the same way that to us all chimpanzees look alike. But I assure you, for a chimpanzee, every chimpanzee looks very different in the same way that I can tell that you look different than me, even though at the some 90 something percent level, we're almost identical. Right. I mean, there's hardly any difference actually between right. each individual human beings, um, which is a very sad comment on some of the you know, socio-political things that go on in the world, but that's maybe a separate topic. I have to add an element on that. I thought about that in one level that uh, I don't want to, you know, sort of, I, I see people as their mind, right? And yeah. if we took out every, I mean, obviously we don't do this, but if we took out every person's mind out and held it, almost every person on the planet, it looks almost identical <laughs> completely. But then we look at all these other details and then it gets thrown off. It's very interesting that we focus on the <laughs> minor diddly details, and, uh, but the variation among human beings is so small, actually. Right. Um, I mean, especially, it always amuses me because, you know, dogs, which are, of course, not really natural. I mean, we've bred them. But, you know, when you think of the variation among dogs, it's extraordinary. You oh. know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to bother them very much. You know, I mean, they, <laughs> and they recognize, you know, a big dog recognizes a small dog as a dog and behaves as such. Um, but we're terrible. When it took us, you know, we've had a terrible history of uh, relationship between people that differ in minor ways from each other, color of skin, shape of their nose, and all the rest of that stuff. That person is 0.03% different in <laughs> DNA. I can't deal with this. Exactly. <laughs> it's too much challenge. One thing, back to the city's item, is it reasonable to think Los Angeles is New York, is London, is, and so on? but with like little environmental alterations. Yeah, so that's the way this, so what was interesting was when we started to um, extend this to cities was uh, unlike in biology, the, biology, the biologists had done the, a lot of the work for us in terms of gathering the data and discovering some of these scaling laws. But in cities, this had not been done. And so the question arose, just as I said, the whale, despite appearances, is actually a scaled up human being, which is a scaled up mouse question is, what you just asked, is New York 
has scaled up Los Angeles, which has scaled up Chicago, which has scaled up Santa Fe. Well, you know, they look completely different. They're different geographies, histories, even different cultures. And, but you can only answer that question, uh, really, by uh, looking at the data, uh, which is what we did. So we gathered data on cities of, uh, across the United States and um, asked, uh, you know, data meaning things like, you know, simple things in principle, like the length of all the roads, um, the uh, number of gas stations. No, the first one actually was number of gas stations, ironically. Um, but, you know, these kinds of things. And then things a bit more sophisticated, like um, what is the average wage in a city? Um, how many flu cases were there in a city? How many, uh, what, how many patents does a city produce? So both um, infrastructural questions, physical, about the physicality of the city, and then socioeconomic questions that to do with interaction between human beings. And to our great delight and interest, what turned out was that cities were scaled versions of one another, that in fact, New York is a scaled up Los Angeles, despite the obvious you know, physical differences. But you know, as I said, a whale is a scaled up human being and look how bloody different we look. Um, but, um, but again, only at this, to this 80, 90% level. So to put it again, slightly differently, you tell me the size of a city in the United States. I will tell you up to 80, 90% accuracy, um, how many patents it produced last year, how many AIDS cases it had, what the average wage is, how many police it has, how much violent crime, and so on. And um, again, uh, when we saw that, we asked the question, where in the hell do these laws come from? You know, that's amazing because, as I said, each of these cities has uh, its own history, geography, and culture, but in the same way that each mammal um, evolved in its own unique environmental history, right? I mean, it evolved, uh, that's what natural selection is about. Uh, but similarly with cities, it has its own unique um, history. And yet they've ended up, despite all of the politics and all of the planning and all of the desires of the people, sitting, roughly speaking, where it should <laughs> in terms of all these metrics, as if it were determined. Now, as I said, there's this slot, and that slot is the reflection of the environment, of its history, geography, and culture, but it says that that's the minor part. The major part of a city is actually, in that sense, determined. Um, so, and, and the reason is, to cut a long story short, is again networks. Here, it's more sophisticated, in fact, than biology. It's, not, it's networks that are like biological networks, like uh, city roads, transport systems um, in general, the, the, you know, the subway system, the bus system, the road system, but um, also the electrical lines, the gas lines, water lines, but most importantly, are the social networks. And it is the social networks, in a certain sense, that are determining the universality of cities. That is the social networks, meaning who, how people interact with each, each other and how in terms of those interactions, they form modular groups like families and businesses and so forth, departments. And it is the approximate universality of those social networks that are driving the universality of cities, not just across the United States, 
but across the globe. Because what we discovered was the scaling of cities in the United States is reflected in exactly the same scaling that we see in South America, Central America, Europe, Asia, and so on, places where we could get data. And, and just to complete the story, that scaling says the following, that as in biology, in biology I said every time you double, say the metabolic rate, you only have to increase by 75%. In cities, the analog to that is instead of 25%, every time you double for any infrastructure, like the roads, the buildings, you only need 85%. So instead of 25%, you get a 15% saving. But most importantly, all socioeconomic quantities, like uh, wages, number of patents, amount of crime, and so on, everything that involves the interaction of human beings, that does something which you never see in biology. Instead of the bigger you are, the less per capita, that is, you get that economy of scale as you get bigger, less roads per capita, less electoral lines per capita. For socioeconomic quantities, the bigger you are, the more you get per capita. The more patents you get per capita, the more wealth per capita, the more disease per capita, the more crime per capita, the good, bad, and the ugly all come together with the same scaling. That is, every time you double, you get, roughly speaking, 15% more of all of those. And all of those are driven because of the positive feedback mechanisms of social interactions, social networks. The bigger you are, the more, the bigger the city is, the, more, the bigger the network is, the more interactions there are, the more interactions there are, the more socioeconomic activity, more socioeconomic activity creates more ideas, patents, creates more other ideas like crime and creates bad things like the transmission of the flu and indeed pandemics. So better to be in a small place than a big place for pandemics, um, but, and so on. So it's a very nice package uh, that fits together with the same kind of mathematics and the same kind of conceptual framework that it is in biology. This is a very key point. I like that you bring this up. The mm. linkage between people is very relevant because how densely packed in right. a place is suddenly it's not just one 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 it multiplies and now exactly. it's uh, increasing quickly and then the areas that are completely disconnected in society none of that multiplication occurs they're off on their own in a way it doesn't have that impact and in relation to this the best segue in the world because i am a master of those you recently have written an article oh, yes. called the damage we're not attending to, where you teamed up with Dr. David Krakauer to write about the pandemic in relation to some scaling. First, how do you know of Dr. David Krakauer? Do you guys work together? How do you know each other? No. Oh, so first of all, he pronounces it Krakauer. Oh, Krakauer. Yes, Krakauer. Krakauer. And he is uh, by training a evolutionary biologist, but mathematically inclined. He's very sophisticated in mathematics. And David is a, the president of the Santa Fe Institute, a colleague of mine, and um, and he's very he's a man interested in many things, worked on many things. But um, we've talked about these kinds of issues before. And when the when COVID nineteen came upon us, uh, we both discovered that we'd had similar reactions to the way we were. Um, uh, society and 
politicians and people of importance were reacting to this and um, we were concerned. And, uh, and one of the things I think uh, we wrote in that article was, um, we should not have been surprised. Had we been thinking, and, and by the way, oh yes, so let me go back off a second. Part of the thing was that, of course, it's natural and, and obvious, and you should indeed focus on the pandemic. Obviously, you focus on the pandemic and how to deal with it. There's no question that's number one priority. But you have to be careful that you see that it's only one a manifestation of many things and interconnected to everything else. And what I just told you about cities is kind of extraordinary when you think about it, because it says that, you know, I told you that AIDS cases, wealth, crime, uh, the degree of education, and so on, all these things scale in the same way across cities and across the globe. 15%. Double, and you know, you double, you get 15% more of the good, the bad, and the ugly, things that you wouldn't have thought were connected. And of course, in this picture, of course they're connected because they all come from social networking of human beings. And what you realize is that if you diddle with one, you start to deal, deal with, you're screwing up something else. So there's this whole problem, which has plagued much of how we deal with questions, and that is, and certainly with cities, but in general of dealing with social and economic problems, is the pro problem of unintended consequences. We think we can solve this problem by keeping it highly local and discover that it's actually connected to many other things. And so the concern was here that we were um, uh, focusing so entirely on the pandemic, on COVID-19, that we were not recognizing that in fact it's the result of the interconnection between almost everything else. And, uh, and so I think I was the one that wrote this, this sentence, and maybe it was a bit unfair, so I won't blame David, but I said, you know, we should not have been surprised that some random arbitrary, um, <laughs> arbitrary development of a, an evolution, if you like, adaptation, if you like, of some obscure virus in a far off Chinese city would have within a few months led to a shortage of yeast and flour in, in, in um, Europe, did in the United States. It led to the bankruptcy of Hertz and Neiman Marcus. Um, it's, it's led to the cancellation of all sports, etc., etc., and so much more because everything is interconnected. So we should have known that and, that and we should have been prepared. We should prepare for that. And, and furthermore, which we didn't discuss in the article, but I discuss at some length in my book, and that is we have not been good at educating ourselves about exponentials, about what an exponential means and um, what it implies. Um, it has, the word exponential has entered the common vocabulary and it's entered it in a meaning that is actually uh, misleading and that is it's entered it as it's going very fast. 
things are going exponentially fast, meaning very fast. Well, it turns out that's partially true because, you know, when things begin exponentially, they go quite slow, actually. That's part of the problem of an exponential. It starts very slowly. And then the problem with an exponential is it does go, quote, exponentially fast, and then it's too late because you haven't realized it. And that is, by the way, that's what happens with a pandemic. So you can be blasé, like Mr. Trump, at the beginning, and you see 100 cases or 10 cases. You say, look, this is ridiculous. You know, and next week there's 100, 200 cases. Why would we go bonkers over this? But within a month or two, because this is the nature of exponentials, if you just keep doubling in a short period of time, you quickly go to something that's totally unmanageable. And um, I didn't do the calculation. Um, it would have been worth doing that my guess is that had nothing been done in the US, if we had just go on, probably by June, everybody would have had COVID. I don't know the numbers I could, I could try to do it in my head, but I made a, make a fool of myself. But, you know, in an extremely short time. And so people don't understand that's the nature of exponentials. And the nature is that by the time you recognize it, if you don't recognize it, if you don't realize what's happening, it's usually too late. And it leads to collapse. And I just want to jump away from that tangentially. One of the messages of my book is that that's the world we live in anyway, independent of the pandemic, because that's what's happening socioeconomically in terms of socioeconomic pace of life. We are expanding our population. We are urbanizing. We are increasing our socioeconomic activity at an exponential rate. Not only are we doing it, we're promoting it because that's what the stock market is. The stock market, we, dump on presidents when we say, oh, the GDP only rose by, you know, one and a half percent in the last uh, two quarters. One and a half percent is exponential growth. By just saying it's risen by one and a half, that means it's rising exponentially and it'll still get there, it'll get there a little bit slower. So, um, and that is a killer ultimately. So, um, this is my passion about the um, sustainability is to get people educated about what an exponential means. And I, I'm hoping, um, <laughs> but I don't have much faith in it. I'm hoping that the pandemic will educate at least part of the public into the threat of an exponential. Um, that it's, it's great if you're, you know, at an individual level, it's great if you've got money in the bank and you watch it exponentially rise with the stock market, that, that feels good and you're told to do that, especially someone like you who's young. By the time you're my age, you'll have a lot of money. You know, if you, if you had um, invested a dollar in uh, the time of just after the Civil War in the US stock market, you would be, you would, that dollar would be worth a million dollars now even adjusted for inflation. It would worth a real million dollars, not just a million fake dollars, but a million adjusted for... So, you know, it's good to do that, but unfortunately, 
that comes at a huge cost. And that cost is one of this exponential threat. And that's what we're seeing in the pandemic. Now, we did intervene. We obviously did intervene and we've been able to curb it. Had we intervened properly, we would be out of it by now. Uh, we would be like Switzerland and other countries and uh, New Zealand. There's no reason, even though we're a much bigger country, the, the problem is so much bigger uh, for us. But we also happen to be the most, the richest and most powerful country. And the thing that's most astonishing as an immigrant, I'm an immigrant to the United States, as an immigrant, one of the attractive things about America um, is that um, because of its history, it is, you know, the kind of can do. We can solve it. Second World War, we're entering, okay, convert everything to manufacture of armaments. General Motors, Ford, GM, all of them, right in there. We produce, you know, and we end, ended up saving the world in a way. Uh, and it acted extraordinarily fast, quickly, efficiently, and everybody got on board, partially because it was an obvious threat, but partially because we had leadership that immediately saw the danger and acted quickly. And here, we had leadership that went exactly the opposite way, poo-pooed the idea. It's like having Pearl Harbor and then saying, oh, well, look, it only destroyed a few ships in Hawaii. And Hawaii, anyway, is several thousand miles away. Who gives a shit? You know, let them, let them do what they want, you know, for the time being. They're not going to do anything. You know, let it be. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a prize schmuck, frank, frank, frankly. And it's unbelievable that this is... Uh, that we're living in a situation like this. So we could have solved this problem and maybe now we will, but we, there doesn't seem a lot of evidence that it's gonna be done very quickly. Um, so one of the things that, going back to this article, one of the major points of this was that yes, we need to, to act in that way, but we also need to think of how it's connected to everything else. It's connected to the structure of our cities, the structure of our society. Um, uh, there's a nice story that David, David Krakauer, introduced into the article, which is this lovely one about uh, the, the, uh, the, the bombers and the, the airplanes in the Second World War, uh, which I will tell because it's fascinating if, if your listeners haven't heard it. Um, it was the following, you know, the, the planes would return from their bombing raids on uh, Germany in the Second World War, and they would come back. And of course, there were lots of bullet holes in, in, in the plane from uh, you know, the, the, the conflict. And so uh, what they would naturally do, well, the natural reaction was, you fortify the planes much more in the places where they were, the bullet holes were, because that's obviously where all the bullets were. And then along came a very smart man named Abraham Wall, who said, Yes, you can do that. But much more importantly is to fortify the planes where there are no bullet holes, which people thought he was nuts because he pointed out that's the damage we can't see because all those planes that were damaged in these other parts were the ones that didn't return home. So that's the most vulnerable. So fortify them in the place we do not see. And in fact, the number of planes lost went down after that. It was a brilliant insight and 
that has entered into much of the thinking of such things. But it's a, it's a metaphor, if you like, of the, the, the threat that we don't see when we only see COVID, that we orient everything towards just this immediate problem, the bullet holes we can see. So the federal agencies immediately say, okay, all of our research money, they don't sound, I'm exaggerating terribly, yeah. but all our research money should go towards COVID, the things related to COVID. Bill Gates says, okay, the Bill Gates Foundation should now do everything only towards COVID and so on. Well, it's a natural reaction and very, you know, it's obviously we do need to put much more into it. I, but we also now need to think about all these other things that contributed to this happening, ha having happened and uh, why it has happened this way and how it spread the way it did and all the other implications for society and the obvious being the whole question which has come up but has not been dealt with in a, a, a serious analytic way and that is the trade-off and that's what all this is about is trade-offs um, between um, you know the efficacy of dealing with immediate dealing with the virus itself but all its other implications, in particular, obviously the economy and so on. And, uh, but only seeing that again in sort of one dimensional forms and not seeing things which are the true reality, multi-dimensional and interconnected with everything else. Very true. There were multiple points you brought up that I resonated with. This multi-dimensional thing is very relevant it's the only world I would I like to see, but I know I'm in some sort of a minority and there's a lot to it. I like that you mentioned the, there's so many concepts you just brought up that I, I wrote a little notes on, but one of them uh, related to the exponential and how it suddenly goes off. Past guest, Dr. Azra Raza at Columbia University, she's a cancer researcher. Her book was called The First Cell and she talked about how if you could target the first cell, that would be the difference because by the time you have a tumor, it's already boom or metastasized. And it, yeah, almost everything by this time, suddenly there's an overreaction, but like, where was it here? That's one. There's so many concepts. The sense of numbers that people have is very um, limited. Yeah, it's not like recently the curve has kind of come up in discussion, but aside from that, it's not internalized. And, and then a few things you talked about there relate to like the it's over there concept. And now we have a globalized earth. So the idea that like that thing is over there very quickly will be over here. And you said like, why just target this one virus when now probably there's like a multitude of similar viruses just brewing in organisms. That's likely to be the case. Uh, globalization looks to be a, a big base for upcoming issues. Is that fair to, be, to say? Like we'll, we'll start to absorb things across the planet that we didn't. Is that, is that likely? Well, it's, it's a huge, this, this question, I mean, unfortunately, some of these questions are now, in fact, all of these questions, of course, are political questions. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't matter. This is one of, I mean, just more generally, doesn't matter how much work one does as a scientist or a thinker, whatever, about these questions, uh, in the end, it's the politicians and policymakers that determine how, obviously, how we address them. And um, 
one of the things that sadly has evolved, several things have sadly evolved, that is do with this globalization, but sadly things have evolved, is that, um, uh, first of all, our educational system has deteriorated to such an extent that um, most people do not have very much scientific literacy at all, even rudimentary. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think now, I mean, in the United Kingdom, this is not true in the United States, for example, you can become a doctor without ever having taken a physics class at all, which I find astounding. Uh, oh. But that's just a side comment. It's, right. it's typical, it's sort of a representation that, you know, that you, you specialize more and more and you realize, well, you don't really need that. You don't need this. But we do need a general education. We, we need both um, scientific literacy, and we need humanistic literacy, um, uh, we need cultural literacy, um, and uh, somehow we're not getting it. Um, and uh, we're paying a price for that. And, uh, and it's ended up in the United States, and the United States is not unique, uh, with a, not just a president, it's, it's unfair. My rant against uh, President Trump is a little bit unfair because it's not just him, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's the Congress, and of course, it's the voters that go along with it. So I, I don't want to totally blame Mr. Trump. He does voice it, um, but um, he is a manifestation of this sort of disdain for science or the idea that I can pick and choose what science I like. Um, and that's one of the great things about science is you can't. <laughs> you know, it's um, in the same way that he can pick and choose truth about non-scientific events as he pleases. Um, and people, people can do that. I mean, that's one of the things any person can do. Uh, but you can't pick and choose reality. I mean, you can't sort of decide that you don't like F equals MA. Mm -hmm. You'd much prefer to have F equals MA squared. Uh, for example, you can't sort of arbitrarily decide that. Um, so, uh, um, so we need people to understand that. And, uh, you know, down, down a ways from that is that uh, we need people to understand things like what an exponential is. And most people don't understand it. And so much so that I would even say that I've been amazed that I've been um, at uh, major events where certainly um, policymakers, ec economists, corporate leaders don't understand what an exponential is. I mean, truly, and I find that scary, frankly, especially now. I found that scary in the context of um, uh, sustainability, which I do find the biggest threat, of course. But I, um, but I found it scary in this uh, COVID situation. Now, just a side comment, by the way, COVID, of course, is self-limiting. You know, I mean, uh, huge numbers of people, you know, if we didn't, it would self-limit. People would, oh, yeah, yeah. vast numbers would die. Tens and tens of millions would die. Uh, mostly people my age. Um, and we can talk about that because that's another thing where I think we've been, and, and I'm on shaky ground a bit here, we're going back to our previous conversation. We have treated COVID also uniformly. 
you know, uniformly across the country and uniformly demographically. And um, I think that's a mistake. It's mistake A, because we should see that in terms of the complexity of the system, there are huge differences between someone your age and mine, and certainly between, you know, people who would be my grandchildren and me. Um, and there are differences across ethnic groups that may have historical reasons, may even have genetic reasons, for we know, probably not, but as economic reasons to do with the way we've, you know, caught, um, divided up society unfairly. But we need to recognize that and deal with people differently. Um, um, uh, and this is, this is always very complicated and it has to be done very carefully. And uh, it, it no doubt would be, could be controversial. But, it's, but we need to come to terms with these questions. I think it's, it's you know, um, it, it's, uh, the, these are real questions and they would help us all get through these kinds of problems. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so going back to this education, and this is all gets um, conflated with a lack of education. And it's sort of remarkable because society is the way we function is so dominated by the fruits of science and technology. And we take them for granted. I mean, my God, um, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. would not be multi-billionaires without science and technology, obviously. And I'm sure they recognize that. But even Mr. Trump, despite the fact that he is a failed businessman, is still a rich man, um, and he wouldn't be that way without, you know, the kind of science and technology that has allowed his, his at least his father's empire that he'd inherited grow. You know, I mean, these are things. And so it's kind of, you know, trying to, this pick and choosing. So we need to, people to recognize this. And it is astonishing that there are, there are no real, there's only one, as far as I can tell, real scientist in the entire Congress. I don't think there's any in the uh, Senate. There's one in the, in the House. And, um, you know, there's a few that people call scientists, which I, I must say, I, I find extraordinary. You know, someone's a dentist or, a, <laughs> or, a, or even a doctor. Doctors, you know, I mean, they at least are exposed to science. Um, and they do have to have had a physics course, <laughs> so they are. But they're not science. Doctors are not scientists typically, unless they've come out of a research background. So there aren't any, and it's kind of amazing. And I think that's again an issue to do with, um, you know, our educational system ultimately. Um, but uh, I don't know how to address those questions, and um, that the whole question of outreach and scientific literacy is one that is sort of underlies a lot of the problems that we have in terms of the populace um, reacting the way they do to some of these issues is, um, uh, and, and that, that requires sort of revolutionary thinking, unfortunately, which might be very hard to do in terms of education. I mean, the thing that's amazing about the American educational system, by the way, is that, you know, at the, once you get to, college, once you get beyond high school, it's superb. I mean, it varies, of course, tremendously, but that's part of its strength, is its extraordinary diversity. 
Um, but also it's superb, and certainly in graduate school and so on, and its research labs and so on are, are, are in many ways unequal. Not that there aren't superb ones elsewhere, but the United States has had this extraordinary history, uh, especially since the Second World War, um, and it's amazing. Um, but but <clears throat> somehow in its um, you know grade school and high school level, um, generically speaking, um, it, it has been uh, not very good. I mean, not that there aren't excellent high schools and excellent grade schools, but overall, it's uh, it, it's not good. And part of that again is to do with the reward system. We don't reward teachers, and if you don't, if you pay teachers, you know. Um, extremely modest salaries, you know, it's not going to attract people that would be willing to go into it. Um, you know, and this is true worldwide, but it's particularly poor here and in uh, the other country I'm very familiar with, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has in some ways become worse than the United States, I have a feeling. But uh, this, this loss of having, you know, expertise in the classroom for young kids is sad. Um, and it's amazing how good a job some of them still do in the circumstances. But overall, we do need some revamping and reinvigoration of the system. Mm -hmm. I noticed that, that the earlier schooling, middle schools, high schools, it's more routine and there's not much thought put into it in specialization, but the later ones where it's more choice and with the U.S. being more like individualist and where the choice and the money goes and yeah. the energy there, suddenly it's wonderful. But the baseline material, not great, whereas collective nations are more... By the way, you brought up something interesting. And I think that one of the reasons America does so well, and so, you know, it's, it's sort of amazing, you know, the power of America in terms of its creativity and innovation, forget about its wealth, um, is some weird combination of um, the, the diversity that does exist at the high school level uh, because of the poor educational system allows diverse. I mean, it's sort of weird. I mean, it's a weird right. consequence of that. It but it allows that. And the culture that's sort of in the American DNA of individuality and sort of the, the, the upside of rugged individualism, if you like, people sort of being able to rise above that and use that diversity to great advantage. And um, I think that's been a remarkable strength of the American system. And the question is, you know, can you maintain that and still raise the, you know, the base level so that many more people can participate in that and also have the, um, um, the education to um, really appreciate what science is? Because one of the things that is poorly done in education is to explain what the scientific method is, you know, what science does, it's self-correction. And the fact that, you know, the words we use like model and theory are different than in colloquial language or that, you know, sometimes, you know, part of the scientific method is to find things that are wrong. You know, I mean, that's, why, that's how we make progress and not to throw the baby out with the bathwater which is the way, uh, you know, we now use it. Um, so, you know, I, I noticed this week, this guy, um, what's his name, DeWine? Yes, Mike DeWine, the, uh, um, the governor of Ohio, 
you know, who first tested positive and then negative on the same day mm. for uh, the virus. And the great fear is that this will only feed into the idea that you can't trust science. And you're like, you know, this seriously. Well, you have to look at that. I mean, there's very good reasons why that happened. Um, and so on and so forth. But anyway, okay. I noticed that there is a quick dismissal of, there could be multiple reasons for it, but there's more thought involved maybe, or yeah, maybe it's just more thought than is usually done uh, in general. And so then it's easier to find some reason to not include a higher level bit of thinking and then oh, dismiss it. Or for example, if there's the treatment for the different subgroups in the pandemic, in different ways, like dense population or this group, uh, based on science, then immediately there'd be responses like, oh, this is, you're picking out this group for this, or how come this group doesn't get this treatment, even if it made sense epidemiologically? Well, that's the problem. That's going to, I mean, that's why I say it's very, what I said was once you start, and it, it is, it's non-trivial. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, and it requires very serious analysis and thought before one try, you would even think about doing it. How, is it really true, these things, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, it runs into this big political question um, in general, um, and political correctness questions, and so forth. And I, so it may just be impossible um, to, to actually carry out, even though, you know, I mean, one has to see the, um, not just both, both the homogeneity and heterogeneity of society, and act accordingly. Yeah, I just thought about it in a way. It's sort of like how IT is looked at for people as the last resort for their technology items. Science for a good chunk of people is looked at as like the last resort for life and uh, big dangers. Okay, fine. Well, let's go to the scientists. What should we do that's important to us? And then <laughs> once things are back into okay order, yeah, right, I don't know what you guys are doing. but Yes, yes. No, it's amazing because... <laughs> The other thing that's happened, I was just thinking about that a little bit, that, you know, if you look at news, news media, there's almost no science in it. You know, there's virtually no science. And the only science that comes in, and the New York Times is a good example, used to have outstanding, I thought, scientific page. I think it was every Tuesday, it used to have a supplement even, I think. Um, and it was fantastic. Um, now it does do science, but it's all... This kind of, it would focus on COVID, obviously, but it's all science in terms of technology and practical stuff, which is good. It's, you know, it's important, but there's not science in terms of why we do science, sort of. The only other things are gee whiz things. It likes to do a little bit about, you know, cosmology and uh, discovery of astrophysical things. Also, that's wonderful. But, you know, all kinds of other things are very rarely talked about. And so it's not that they don't do them. It's sort of down there, you know, hidden somewhere. You can't, you know, it's not, it's not a major piece of the news or major piece of magazines. They, often they give lip service to it, but that's the way I feel about it, is it's lip service relative to the role it's playing in society. I once, I don't know if I mentioned this at the time. I thought about this at the time, but it just reminds me of, I once interviewed Lisa Randall, who's an oh, astrophysicist yeah. at Harvard. No, and I don't. Yes. You, do you know her? 
Oh, no, very well. Okay. Uh, and the, her book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, I was thinking at the time, like, even though dark matter is so far removed uh, from us as people, as compared with some other science that's more day-to-day in life, the wow factor of it, like, oh, that's so far away, and the dinosaurs and dark matter and universes gives uh, that category of science a little boost, kind of like you just said in the New York Times article. Yes. Articles of that type. Yes. There's a boost factor there. There is. It doesn't come to like day to day. Oh, sorry. Like my phone has amazing technologies in it for every feature. Hey, it works. It's working right now. <laughs> One thing I also want to add in you mentioned a couple of times our age differences. In fact, in my mind, I've always thought to myself, I basically am your age. I just have to throw that out there for all the people because that's always been my, from when I was like 10, 15, 20, I've always been like, I might as well have been 72 or something because that's the way I work. So I'm putting that out there. Maybe my, you know, blood vessels or something, but uh, well, actually, my mind. That's true. I, I, I know one of the interesting things about age in general is, of course, what is it? There's lots of platitudes about it. You know, you're the age you think, you know, you feel you are kind of thing. And it's certainly true. I mean, you know, I sometimes feel very old. I'm, I'm 80 this year. I mean, a couple of months, I'm 80. Eight is the coolest number. So it's, uh, you know, and I sometimes feel I, I, I hurt my back. I fell hiking uh, last summer and ru- badly ruptured my, hurt my discs. And that was terrible. I mean, it was six months out and so on. And, and I'm still, you know, I'll never be back to where I was. But I do at times feel not eight, I feel 90. Um, but then other times... <clears throat> I suddenly realized, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm like a 20-year-old. I'm feeling both in my head, whether it's about work and I'm excited or things that I see or, you know, something romantic, whatever. And I suddenly realized, my God, um, you know. And I remember my mother, when she was dying, said to me, you know, it's amazing. She was in her 80s. She said, it's so weird. She said, you know, inside my head, I still feel like a 16-year-old girl. And that always stayed with me. And I've had, I certainly have had those experiences. Definitely. It's a very key point. I like that concept and it's too bad about the back, but that makes sense. And that those feelings of like 20, there's this one business person currently he's 42 and he tells young kids who are like 20, if you knew that you would basically still feel 20, let's say at my age, you wouldn't rush so quickly to do what you're doing or. (laughs) Yes. The mindset doesn't age that way unless I've always thought yeah. if you give up on things or put them aside, then you start to age. Yeah. One thing I always like to add in and bring as a cohesive message is if you had a megaphone to all the people of the planet, what is a message you want them all to know either based on uh, your research, or just a message you'd want to tell all the people for their guidance or insight? Oh, my God. <laughs> I always like to throw this one out there as a out of nowhere and like uh, yeah, in a category like of a general message. What? Oh, goodness. I, I don't know. On the you spot. Know, first thing, I- you know what's interesting? The first thing, I know this is strange, the mm-hmm. first thing that came to my mind mm-hmm. was love one another. Um, maybe that's all it is. It's a bit like, um, what was it? There's this uh, famous Jewish rabbi 
that said something like, um, when asked about the Torah or the Talmud, I forget what, he said something like, love thy neighbor as thyself, all the rest is commentary. And I felt that, I, I realized, you know, that was the first thing that just came immediately. But then, of course, my scientific mind comes in <laughs> and it's like, you know, I don't know, um, be mindful and learn about exponentials kind of thing. <laughs> but then it starts to become, then I sort of turn into a professor and it all becomes, you know, a, lec a, a mini lecture, which is not so good. I hear what you're saying. That's pretty good, right? I've done that sometimes where I describe something and then I'm like, but also going back to the thing I think of in this way, this yeah. is what I would say. That's true. That I, I want to add in that message about love one another. There's sort of a theme in relation to that. Um, that's sort of a, I don't want to say common theme, but a few have alluded to that concept when it just came from. Is that right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, of course, it's the hardest thing to do. Right. <laughs> that care, that care towards yeah, like others is, no, it's extraordinary how hard that is. This is the part I'm not naturally built for as a human, but in conclusion to this wonderful episode of the Armin Show number 274, I would like to thank you for having been on. Maybe you'll be on in the future and bringing forth so much here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I enjoyed that conversation. And stay in touch, as they say, and stay well, most importantly. Will do. And we are out.